Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 17th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Using the Hour Rule. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and the creator of the excellent FOMED project called First 10 EM. Happy 2019, Justin. This is our first SGEM hop for 2019. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here, Ken. And You know, I must be getting a little bit old because 2019 sounds so weird. The year 2000 and Y2K just still feels like it was yesterday to me. I remember going out for the Y2K going, are all the power plants going to shut down? What's going to happen? Will the world end? What will happen? And it turned out to be a big nothing. But you've had a big something happen. You've moved recently. So let the SGMers know where you are located. Yeah, so I'm now living in New Plymouth, New Zealand. And I really got to give a shout out to the, the wonderful team here at Taranaki Base Hospital because, you know, it's it's really hard to try to figure out how to work in a new department, let alone doing it on the opposite side of the world. And everybody here has just been absolutely wonderful. They've made this transition easy for me. Uh, and so, and you know what, even though it's a really long way away, it feels a lot like Canada because even in New Zealand, they end all their sentences with A, A. Well, with the miracle of modern technology, we can still do an SGEM hot off the press with you on the other side of the world. So give us a case. So you have a 33-year-old man who arrives via EMS after initially being found unresponsive with an oxygen saturation of 89%, a respiratory rate of 6 a systolic blood pressure of 75, and pinpoint pupils. The EMS crew observes drug paraphernalia and suspect an IV opioid overdose. They quickly place an IV line and start a fluid bolus. They provide supplemental oxygen, and one milligram of IV naloxone is given. He's alert and oriented, although a little agitated, and has normal vital signs by the time he gets to the emergency department. 60 minutes after receiving naloxone, he is GCS-15 and walking to the desk demanding to be discharged. Well, there have been close to 400,000 deaths from an overdose involving any opioid, whether it's prescription or illicit, between 1999 and 2017. And two-thirds of all drug overdoses in the U.S. in 2016 involved an opioid. Three distinct waves have been observed, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Yeah, so the first wave was an increase in prescription opioid overdose deaths in the 1990s. And that was followed by wave two, which was a rapid increase in overdose deaths involving heroin starting in 2010. And now we're experiencing a third wave, and there's been a significant increase in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, like illicitly manufactured or prescribed fentanyl. And that started being seen around 2013. So as we all know, opioids can depress the heart rate and breathing, and therefore overdoses can result in death. Naloxone is the specific treatment for opioid overdoses and is becoming widely available to first responders of all sorts, whether it's police, fire, first aiders, laypeople, or, or EMS. Naloxone is an opioid antagonist that binds competitively to the opioid receptor in the central nervous system and the gastrointestinal tract. It can be administered in multiple ways. You can give it intranasally, subcutaneously, intramuscularly, intravenously, nebulized, or down the endotracheal tube. 
Now, some clinicians have recommended observing opioid overdoses for four to six hours. This teaching has been challenged by a systematic review by Williams in 2017. They concluded for patients treated in the ED for opioid overdose, an observation period of one hour is sufficient if they ambulate as usual, have normal vital signs, and a Glasgow coma scale of 15. Well, this recommendation, Justin, was based on the St. Paul's early discharge rule. And St. Paul's is out there in British Columbia. And so they had this one-hour rule. So here's the one-hour decision rule. One hour after the administration of naloxone for presumed opioid overdose, patients can be safely discharged from the ED if they meet all six criteria. So here are the six criteria. The first thing is they've got to be able to mobilize as usual. The second thing is they have to have a normal oxygen saturation. Now, for the original derivation set, they set that at greater than 92%. But for this study, the validation study, they elevated that oxygen saturation and that it had to be greater than 95%. The third thing is they had to have a normal respiratory rate, so it had to be greater than 10 or less than 20 breaths per minute. The fourth thing is they had to have a normal temperature. So this was defined as greater than 35 degrees Celsius and less than 37.5 degrees Celsius. And I'm sorry for all my American friends out there. I have no idea what that is in Fahrenheit. The fifth thing is they had to have a normal heart rate and that was defined as greater than 50 and less than 100 beats per minute. And the sixth and final thing is they had to have a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 15. And this clinical decision tool, I guess, was first arrived in Vancouver, BC, almost 20 years ago. However, the tool has never been externally validated. And you know, Justin, we reviewed that Williams et al. publication back on SGM 179, and we generally agreed with the author's conclusions. However, we were conservative in our bottom line, recognizing there are patients that can be safely discharged home after an opioid overdose and administration of naloxone. But you need to perform a careful clinical examination, be certain to observe the patient's respiratory pattern and mental status in a non-stimulated state, and exercise caution. Let's get to the clinical question. What do you got for us? So can the hospital observation upon reversal, or the hour rule, be used to risk stratify patients for safe discharge from the emergency department after suspected opioid overdose? And the reference? So this is clemency at all, hospital observation upon reversal or hour with naloxone, a prospective clinical prediction rule validation study. And of course, because it's an SGEN hop episode, it's AEM December 2018. Let's run through the PICO. What's the population? So this was a convenient sample of adult patients. They were 18 years or older who arrived at the emergency department after being treated with naloxone. And there were just a few exclusions and I'll put them in the show notes. What was the intervention? So they were looking at this hour clinical decision rule. And they compared it to what, Justin? They, they compared it to clinical judgment. Oh, I like that. Okay. And how about the outcome? So they were looking at adverse events, and there were a number of them. Uh, they had a list of clearly defined adverse events, and those included pretty obvious things like death or repeat naloxone for respiratory depression, supplemental oxygen if you had hypoxemia. And then a long list, assisted ventilation, IV inotropes, antiarrhythmics for sustained tachycardia, cardioversion, administration of mannitol dialysis, and administration of bicarb for a bicarb level less than five. Whew. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay. Well, there were a number of scenarios that were defined as unclear adverse events, and I'll list those in the show notes. But I want to get to the exciting part because you know what? 
This is the SGM hop. This is the first one of 2019. And as always, we always try to get the lead author. And we have Dr. Brian Clemency. Brian, welcome to the SGM. Thanks for having me, Ken and Justin. And hello to everyone out there who's walking their dog right now, because uh, that's my preferred activity while listening to my phone med. <laughs> well, Brian, you know, you did not provide me with a glowing introduction. So all I have is uh, welcome to the SGM, Brian. Um, hey, can you sell yourself a bit? Where are you? What are you doing? Sure. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine in Buffalo, which everyone knows is Canada Light. And I'm the EMS fellowship director and uh, EMS medical director in town. That's great. So, Brian, I got to ask, what got you interested in this uh, research topic? Well, over the past few years, emergency departments everywhere have seen a huge increase in the number of patients presenting following opiate overdose and naloxone reversal. And when we looked at provider practice patterns in our region, it was all over the place. Some docs were holding normal appearing patients for six hours, kind of just in case. Others were discharging patients immediately when they arrived at the ED door, and there was everything in between. One of our residents pointed out the original derivation study, but I and, and many of us were skeptical because we felt the landscape of overdose and reversal when the derivation study was done was just too different from what we see today in order to generalize the results. Did you notice, Justin, that he's just trying to like snuggle up to us there? Because first of all, you know, he's talking about being a dog lover and walking dogs. I love my dog. And then in the next sentence, he's talking about being skeptical. Oh, welcome to the show, Brian. You, you got to know your audience, Ken. All right. Well, give us an author's conclusion. What did you guys come up with as your conclusion in your abstract? Our conclusion was this rule may be used to risk stratify patients for early discharge following naloxone administration for suspected opiate overdose. All right, go walk that dog, and we're going to run through a quality checklist for clinical decision tools and then talk about the key results, and then we're going to bring you back after you've walked your dog and talk a little nerdy. Okay, Brian? Sounds good. Just once around the house. Once around the house. Here we go. Justin, quality checklist for clinical decision tools. The study population included or focused on those in the emergency department. Yes, it did. The patients were representative of those with the problem. I'll give it an unsure because they included a number of patients with unknown or poly drug overdoses rather than the pure opioid overdoses. Three all important predictor variables and outcomes were explicitly specified. Yes. This is a prospective multi-center study, including a broad spectrum of patients and clinicians, i.e. a level two study. So it gets no because it was a single center study. Clinician interpreted individual predictor variables and score the clinical decision rule reliably and accurately. So I gave this one an unsure. Number six, this is an impact analysis of a previously validated clinical decision rule or a level one study. So no, it isn't because it hadn't been previously validated yet. So then we can skip number seven because that's about level one studies. And let's go to number eight. The follow-up, was it sufficiently long enough and complete? Unsure. And the last question, the effect size, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? So we'll give that one a no. Let's run through those key results. They had just over 500 patients included in this study. The mean age was 33 years and two-thirds were male patients. Mean total naloxone dose, listen to this, 3.1 milligrams with 85% getting treated with intranasal naloxone. So I think that's an important thing to notice. 
two-thirds of the patients stayed in the ED greater than four hours, and only 6.5% left under two hours. Overall, 82 patients, or about 15%, had an adverse event, and there were no deaths within 48 hours. And I think the easiest way to summarize uh, this study is that the numbers for both the hour rule and clinical judgment are very similar. The sensitivity for both was 85%, specificity 61%, negative predictive value 96%, and the positive predictive value of 29%. Okay, so, you know, sensitivity, just to remind everybody, that's true positive. So that's in the mid 80s. And specificity was in the low 60, and that's true negatives. I'll put a table in there for those various parameters with the hour rule compared to clinical judgment. Now, if you took a combination of both clinical judgment and the hour rule, such that you had to pass both to be considered safe for discharge, they weren't clinically different either. And I'll throw those in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Now, if you look what most of us are looking for for a decision tool, it's no, not missing anything. And so the hour rule would have missed 13 adverse events, clinical judgment would have missed 12, and the combination of the two would have missed 10. And when we look at it, three of those adverse events appeared to be clinically important. These cases would have probably led to morbidity or mortality if left untreated after the one-hour evaluation. Yeah, two patients received a repeat dose of naloxone, and one patient was treated with artificial ventilation. All right, Brian, you still there? Brian, you there? I'm back. Okay. What's your dog's name? Molly. Sit, Molly, sit. All right, here we go. She's actually at my feet right now under the desk. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so now it's time to talk nerdy to me, and we will not address the whole tool versus rule thing, because I think we've covered that enough, and we know where I stand on that issue. Uh, But we're going to do two sets of my favorite number, five. So we're going to have 10 questions for Brian. Justin, you have the first question. Yeah, so question number one is about selection bias. A large number of patients were excluded because they didn't have the one-hour assessment completed. Is it possible that these patients were systematically different from the included patients in some way, which would make the hour rule less accurate in those missed patients? Obtaining a one-hour evaluation was uh, often challenging in our busy urban teaching hospital. Often by the time the patient was transported to the hospital, clear triage and came to the back, it was almost time to do the one-hour evaluation. Sometimes we just missed it. Other times we had multiple sick patients in the ED and no provider available to do the evaluation. So we wanted to address the concern of selection bias. So we analyzed a sample of subjects that were enrolled but never received a one-hour evaluation and as a result were excluded. In the sample of excluded patients we looked at, the rate of adverse event was actually 6%. So it was lower than the 15% among subjects included in the analysis. So even though there could always still be some type of systematic bias in the sample, it's at least reassuring that the frequency of adverse events was lower among patients that were missed. Well, I'm going to come at you with question number two, and this is how you modified the rule. The hour rule was changed between that derivation set done about 20 years ago and the validation set that you performed you increase the normal oxygen saturation from it had to be greater than 92%, that was in the original derivation set, and you up that to it had to be greater than 95%. Why did you make the change and what impact, if any, do you think that had on the results? 
So I think in the U.S. and certainly in Buffalo, we tend to have an almost irrational aversion to borderline oxygen saturations, right? Someone's getting ready to be discharged and they're saturating 92% and we're all losing our minds. When we began to plan the study, multiple members of our clinical team were concerned about this with the prospect of potentially discharging someone after an hour with a pulse ox of only 92, 93. If you're at that borderline level at one hour and then you're still hanging around the ED and 60 minutes later you're at 91% and someone slaps a nasal cannula on you, well, you just had a prediction rule failure. Intuitively, raising the saturation threshold should have increased the sensitivity but decrease the specificity of the rule. Excellent. All right, so moving on to question number three, which it maybe gets at my favorite topic, which is clinical judgment. So you know, most decision rules are never compared to clinical judgment. It tends to be one of my biggest concerns about other clinical decision tool studies. So what made you decide to include that, that comparison here? So clinical decision tools or rules should be used to augment and never replace provider judgment. In comparing the two, we wanted to have a way to identify cases in which the provider would have overridden the findings of the decision rule and taken a more conservative approach to the patient's management. So as a follow-up there, the one-hour evaluation here was done by a variety of clinicians. There were attendings and residents and advanced practice uh, providers. Clearly, these groups would have different levels of clinical experience to base their judgment upon. Did you look at these subgroups? Yeah, we didn't identify which provider type was completing the one-hour evaluation. Often at the one-hour mark, the patient did not yet have an assigned provider, and our research associate team would grab the closest provider they could to try to accomplish the one-hour evaluation. So part of this was a logistical issue. The other issue for us is that at a teaching hospital such as ours, the ED attending and the resident may evaluate the patient simultaneously as part of the usual care pattern. So in this uncontrolled environment, even if the resident was the one physically filling out the paper form themselves, they might still be impacted by the judgment of the attending. So it would be unclear whose clinical judgment we really were gathering. So you weren't really sure about whose clinical judgment, but we're pretty sure who was left filling out the form. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. Okay, question number four. This is about incorporation bias. Clinical judgment was determined after the clinician filled out the clinical decision tool. Therefore, there is a chance that the components of the rule were incorporated into clinical judgment. How do you think that might have affected the results? That's a great point. In our study, provider judgment and the rule had similar individual sensitivity and specificity, and there was a lot of overlap between the two, as you mentioned earlier. Before the study began, our providers were already exposed to the rule. So even if a provider was not actually asked to document the components of the rule and their impression back to back, they still would have been generally aware of the rule. The rule is easy to do in your head. It's just six items, which are often already part of our clinical evaluation for most conditions. And you need to pass all six in order to be deemed low risk, as opposed to those more complex rules that incorporate, say, ancillary tests or give different point values to various components. I think the only way to completely avoid incorporation bias would be to have a group of providers that were completely unaware of the rule or have a rule that was so complex and so reliant on ancillary testing and whatnot that the provider wouldn't be able to calculate it in their head at the bedside. You know, I absolutely agree. This is a problem with basically every clinical decision rule, but this is why I love reading these papers because even if I don't use the rule itself, it gives me a lot more data to base my clinical judgment upon. 
So moving on to question number five, we wanted to ask you about the definition of adverse events. We really liked that the adverse events were clearly defined and that there was a category of unclear adverse events with clear guidelines for definitions. However, because adverse events were determined by chart review, I wonder whether some adverse events might have been missed, especially if they occurred after the patient left the hospital. So that's possible. There's, I guess, three ways that an adverse event could have been missed in our study. Uh, first, it could have occurred in the hospital but not been documented. It could have been documented but missed during the data extraction. Or it could have occurred after the patient left the hospital. We, we did review both the nursing documentation and the provider documentation for the adverse events. Not surprisingly, our nursing colleagues were much better, much more diligent about charting adverse events than the docs were ourselves. In terms of missing documented adverse events, we did perform a data validation, which is in the publication, where we looked at multiple reviewers at the three different levels of data extraction and chart adjudication. The interrelator reliability Kappa scores were 1.0, uh, 0.99, and 0.79. So those three steps were really quite good. Finally, it's possible that an adverse event could have occurred after the patient left the hospital. But remember, two-thirds of all our patients remained in the ED for at least four hours. And we also reviewed medical examiner records for deaths as one more level of backstop. Well, the adverse events seem to include things that might not be related to the initial opioid overdose, such as dialysis, mannitol, or IV antibiotics. Is the decision rule supposed to catch bad outcomes from the opioid or all possible bad outcomes in a population that has a number of health problems at baseline? I think this clinical prediction rule is best applied for patients for whom the provider is concerned that they overdosed with a short-acting route of administration opiate, like IV overdose. Our list of adverse events was based on the original study protocol. I'm not sure exactly how it was derived. For instance, no patients in either the derivation or our study received mannitol. One of the prediction failures was a patient who got fluid and antibiotics for skin abscesses, for instance, which was likely related to drug abuse. This is definitely a population with lots of health problems, some of which are the cause of and others are the result of their substance abuse disorder. Certainly, if you're concerned about another condition other than overdose, you should work up your patient independent of your evaluation for their acute overdose. So continuing with adverse events, a number of the adverse events were actually surrogate outcomes, such as the need for oxygen. You know, patients often desaturate while snoring when they're at home and, and we don't do anything about it. There were no deaths in this cohort, and it isn't clear if there were any truly patient-important adverse events. Brian, don't answer that, okay? Justin's trying to steal my thunder. That's number six, Justin. I wanted to get into disease-oriented versus patient-oriented adverse events. So just forget he asked that, okay, Brian? We're going to back up, and I'm going to ask question six. Justin, behave yourself. Okay, here we go. Disease-oriented versus patient-oriented adverse events. The vast majority of adverse events identified were disease-oriented. Supplemental oxygen for hypoxia was provided in like almost three-quarters of the patients with an oxygen saturation of less than 93%. The vast majority of missed adverse events were also disease-oriented, hypoxia requiring supplemental oxygen. The true patient-oriented adverse events were rare, making the use of negative predictive value much less useful. And this is because negative predictive value is based on prevalence. And the prevalence of patient-oriented adverse events would only be about 2 to 
So I think the prevalence of patient-oriented adverse events in this study was probably higher than 2 to 3%, but I agree it's definitely much lower than the 15% of patients that met the pre-established criteria in our study. Because our study was observational and because the standard practice in our department at the time of the study was to observe patients for four hours or more, we had lots of patients hanging around after their one-hour evaluation. And we all know the longer patients wait in the emergency department, the more treatment they're going to get even if it's not absolutely necessary. It's hard because mild transient hypoxia is easy to identify retrospectively, but it's often impossible for clinicians to know at the time if the patient's oxygen saturation has leveled off or if it's still on the way down. Among the 13 patients who had a normal one-hour evaluation and then an adverse event, only two got BiPAP and two got repeat naloxone. The rest met one or more criteria for an adverse event based on the pre-established criteria, but I agree probably in retrospect, most if not all of them did not truly represent a patient-oriented adverse event. The inclusion of these non-patient-centered outcomes in the study give us a less subjective um, and also more conservative evaluation of the rules performance. While we did not separate the outcomes that we thought were patient-centered versus those who were not, I think based on the review of the table of prediction failures, one can infer that the actual negative predictive value for the rule for patient-centered outcomes is higher than the 96% negative outcome reported among the pre-established outcomes. I was admittedly frustrated with some of the patients who ended up meeting the pre-established criteria, even though in retrospect, I think they would have been just fine without getting two liters of nasal cannula, for instance, for a pulse ox of 91%. We felt it was important to be true to the study protocol and report all of these events, but then let you make your own decision as the reader about were these misclassified events really things that would have been problematic to the patient if left untreated. Well, thank you, uh, Brian, for such a thorough answer. Uh, Justin, welcome back. <laughs> okay, I'm, st I'm still allowed to talk, am I? Okay. You, you, go ahead, you go ahead and ask a question. Okay. Question number seven was about the reliability of the score. So this validation study did not assess the accuracy of clinicians using the score or its individual components. Now, the variables used are clearly defined and mostly objective, although can mobilize as usual, and the GCS score can probably have some subjective interpretation. Do you have a sense either from prior studies or from, ex uh, from experience about the inter-rater reliability of this rule? So do I have to skip this answer because I spent too long on the last one, guys? No, you go ahead, Brian. You're the, you're the lead author. <laughs> so, so, so the derivation study used a Kappa score of 0 0.4 as, as the lower confidence interval cutoff uh, for an item to be included in the final rule. We included in the analysis inter-rater reliability for judging adverse outcomes, uh, but not for the components of the study itself. And we all know the inter-rater reliability for non-15, non-perfect GCS scores is not good. In fact, it's probably awful in some cases, such as this guy's got a GCS of 9 versus 11. But I think in general, if you ask the question 15 or not 15, that probably has a pretty decent Kappa score. It's probably pretty reliable. I'm not aware of any prior studies looking at the inter-rater reliability of can mobilize as usual. Um, but that'd probably make a good project if there's a medical student or resident out there looking for a first study. So if you're listening, Brian has just given you a great research project to look into. Number eight, 
other risk factors. This is a validation study, so the rule was already formed, and therefore other risk factors were not studied. However, there are a number of other important risk factors in this population, including the type of opioid and the route of ingestion and polypharmacy and comorbidities. Do you think these factors could help make a more accurate decision rule? So we did not examine comorbidities, but the original derivation study did consider um, HIV status, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and diabetes as potential predictive variables, but none of them were included in the final version of the rule. So I don't have the data to prove this, but I think that route of opiate administration is generally more important than naming the drug that you actually took when risk stratifying patients in the emergency department. And, and this is key because many of our patients don't actually know what the true composition of the drug they just took was, right? They say, I took heroin, but who knows what else was in it? And they may know what the drug dealer told them was in it, but shockingly, the reliability of the drug dealer on the corner is just not what it used to be. Asking the patient how they took the drug, however, is probably much more reliable. And I think it's fair to generally divide opiates into a shorter-acting group, those are opiates that are snorted, injected, or smoked, um, versus anything taken orally should be considered longer-acting. All right. So question number nine is about non-opioid ingestions. A number of people with adverse events were listed as having polydrug overdoses or overdoses on a non-opioid, so that naloxone would not be expected to work. How might the inclusion of these patients have affected your results? So I think this speaks to the unique challenge that we face every day as we evaluate patient status post-naloxone administration. At the time of the derivation study 20 years ago, only paramedics were able to administer naloxone in the field. Today in New York and in, and in many other places, police officers, firefighters, basic EMTs, and the lay public all have access to naloxone and are all administering naloxone. This means many more people are getting the medication, some of which have not overdosed on an opiate, and some of whom may not have overdosed on anything at all. As a result, it may be difficult to get a clear picture, especially in the first hour after the person gets administered naloxone. Patients with mixed overdoses, in particular, are probably at an increased risk for adverse events. In my clinical practice, I'm particularly concerned about patients who insist they didn't overdose at all. And, and I know many of them are lying to me, I understand that. But if you have a patient who was briefly unconscious or apneic, and you think they didn't have any opiates on board, you should be really worried about that patient, right? You need to dig much deeper into what's going on. All right, this leads to number 10, and this is about the external validity. This study was conducted in a single urban academic tertiary care center that has specialized services, including psychiatric and substance abuse care. Do you think this hour rule could be applied to the community setting or even a rural hospital where I work without these specialized services? Yeah, I think it certainly can, Ken. We're really lucky to have lots of specialty support at our institution. And these specialty services don't typically assist us with clearing opiate overdose patients, but the fact that we have them means that we're gonna get a lar much larger proportion of overdose patients from the community coming to our ED seeking care. Our clinical gestalt for these cases may be a little more developed than that of our colleagues that don't see as many overdose patients just like my emergency medicine colleagues at the Comprehensive Stroke Center down the road are probably much better at picking up an atypical stroke presentation than I would be. 
the utility of clinical impression may be less reliable in providers who just don't see it as often. But our hope is that the tool will still be equally useful, right? The tool should remain constant. It uses only six things, two of which are physical exam kind of findings that we use every day. The other four are vital signs that we look at all the time. Calculating an, an NIH stroke score, for instance, is complex and, and utilizes tests that we don't always do. So this should be much more generalizable. Wonderful. So those were all of our 10 nerdy questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to say either about your study or the topic of opioid overdose in general? So if you'll excuse me, I'll get up on my soapbox for a second. You know, challenges in risk stratifying patients after opiate overdose, they're easy compared to the challenges of figuring out what to do with these patients next. In a follow publication that's currently in peer review, we showed that among patients in this cohort that survived their overdose and were safely discharged, about 2% died within two days and two months of their initial overdose. That's not a composite endpoint. That's death among a patients who are at the age at which they're simply not supposed to die. Like any other life-threatening chronic disease, we need to ensure that our opiate overdose patients leave the ED with a real care plan. This includes naloxone kits, medication-assisted treatment, and rapid referral to an inpatient or outpatient treatment facility that's able to meet their unique needs. We're super lucky in my hospital. We have an amazing program where I can start a patient on Suboxone MAT from the emergency department and call the number 24-7 to get my patient into an MAT clinic near their home within one to three days. You know, folks, opiate abuse is truly a disease, and our treatment for our patients needs to reflect that. I think it was great that you got on your soapbox and said something like that. I think that's one of the highlights of this whole program. Listening to you, I could hear the passion in your voice and that you truly care about this marginalized part of our society. So, Brian, well done. Thank you, sir. Justin, can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions? Yeah, so we agree that this clinical decision tool may or may not be used to risk stratify patients for early discharge following naloxone administration for suspected opioid overdose. Oh, what are you making, waffles there? Yeah. I think you're a waffle and <laughs> may or may not. Okay, give us a bottom line then. So clinical judgment is really important and should not be underrated. This study supports the use of clinical judgment in the decision to discharge suspected overdose patients, although caution is required as there were a number of adverse events missed both with clinical judgment and the decision tool. Can you resolve the case? Yeah, so using your clinical judgment and the tool, you discharge the patient home with a prescription for a naloxone kit and offer a referral to an addiction counselor. And so how are you going to take this new paper that's hot off the press out of AEM and apply it clinically? So this decision rule is no more accurate than clinician judgment. So it's not clear how it would improve patient care if used. Understanding what individual factors are predictive of adverse events is important, though. And so this study could be used to teach students and to improve our own clinical judgment, especially in settings where opioid overdoses are less common, if there are any of those left. And what are you going to tell the patient, Justin? So I'd say something like, you've just had an opioid overdose, and you feel better because we gave you a drug that blocks the effect, something called naloxone. If you feel like you're getting worse, you should come back to the emergency department immediately. We would prefer that you go home with somebody who can keep an eye on you for a short period of time. 
if you'd like to be referred to a detox program, we can arrange for, you, for somebody for you to meet with. We're also going to give you a prescription for a naloxone kit to take home with you. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest, and we don't have a winner from last week, so it's going to remain a mystery. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what the answer was. No, somebody out there has to find out the answer to last week's Keener question put forward by pain-free ED guru Sergey Motov. Justin, what's the question this week? So although fentanyl is a relatively new problem, humans have been using opioids for a very long time. Our question is, what is the earliest known historical reference to opioid use in humans? And I don't need an exact date, just the right century will do. Well, if you know the answer to this week's Keener Contest question, then send an email to the SGM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. So now it's your turn, S-Gemmers. What did you think of this episode on the hour rule for opioid overdoses? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. Do you have questions for Brian and his team? Come on over to the SGEM blog and ask them. The best social media feedback will be included in the publication in AEM. Yeah, you could just, you know, like tweet at Brian and say, hey, I know your dog's name is Molly. What kind of dog is it? And maybe he'll answer. Brian, will you answer that question? Or is that too personal? That could be the keener question next week. <laughs> oh, it could be the keener question. If you know the breed of Brian's dog named Molly, then you know what? If somebody figures out the breed of dog, I will just send them a cool skeptical prize for being so diligent. But also, don't forget, if you subscribe to AEM, you can get... CME credits for this. So you just head over to the AEM page, get your CME credits for this podcast, and we'll put the whole process in the SGEM blog. Thanks, Brian and Molly, for coming on the SGEM and talking about this hot off the press publication. Thanks for having me, Ken and Justin. Well, I hope it wasn't too rough for you. Justin, thank you for recording another SGEM hop all the way from the other side of the world. When we're doing this, when you came up on Skype, I thought for sure. For sure, the image would be upside down, but apparently, no, it's not. I'm actually hanging from my ceiling to make just to make it a little bit easier on your eyes. <laughs> to make me feel more comfortable, thank you. But but the flushing thing, it does go down the opposite way, down the drain, right? I mean, if you want me to send you a recording, I'm happy to do so. Uh, no thanks. I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that one go. And now to finish the show, Brian, you got to give the SGM tagline like a true. Buffalonian? Is that is that what you call someone from Buffalo? A Buffalonian? I, I suppose so. Or or just a Bills fan, I guess. Oh, uh, okay. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Oh,